Hello, welcome uh, to the Alongsider podcast, where we hear stories about how people have come alongside others and how others have come alongside them at key moments of decision and decision making uh, in their in their lives, careers, um, and experience. And today uh, we welcome Claire Pedrick, um, who is a great alongsider. She's come alongside the actually the coaching and mentoring community um, significantly. She's written a wonderful book called um, Simplicity, which is about simplicity of coaching. Uh, and her most recent book is about the human behind a coach, which sort of says it all. The thing I've noticed about the conversation is that uh, she believes that there is definitely just enough. There's a point we reach where we there's just enough. Um, something that she doesn't find particularly motivating is predictability. Um, and another key motivator for her is to be aware of, I mustn't stay too long. Um, so that's about prompting us into new new rooms and new new experiences and new times in our lives. I know you're going to enjoy hearing uh, Claire. She's uh, high energy. She's a great thinker. She's a great person to have alongside as a thinker. And I commend the conversation to you. Hi, welcome to the Alongside Up podcast. Um, well, uh, we're here really just to have a good conversation. Uh, we're focusing on the third stage of life. Uh, perhaps what are you going to do when you've done the career bit and put it down and you're thinking about what next? Um, we've had some really, really good conversations, and I know this one's going to be a gem. Uh, meet Claire Pedrick, uh, who I knew, I know through the coaching context. Um, she's uh, she's my supervisor. She's also been my coach and mentor. Um, so, um, without any further ado, Claire, if someone was going to introduce Claire Pedrick, what might they say? Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> Do you know, it's, that's a really good question, because as soon as you say that, I say something different than if I was going to introduce myself. Mm. If someone was to introduce me, they would say to you that I am a disruptor in the world of coaching. Mm. Mm. And I am a human. Yeah. yeah, and and disrupt, I mean, that word's been used a lot in the sort of early noughties, isn't it? Uh, and uh, the world's in a state of disruption at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> Um, and my observation of you is, I would say that's definitely right. But there's an awful lot more than 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 just that. And oh, I realized, as I was just thinking about today, I thought actually I don't know Claire very well actually because I only know in a sort of certain context. And maybe by the end of this, people might know a little bit more about you. I mean, what what would where did you start? How did you get into coaching? Because I know you've been doing it for decades. Not I just, have. You know, so how did you get into that? So I guess if you if I go back to, if I go back to school at school I went to the school that said you needed to do a degree in a subject that you studied at school and I was too stupid to realize that that wasn't true. Mm. So I did a, a degree in applied statistics wasn't very good at it. Um had a lovely time. Oh. <laughs> Managed to pass. Um and then I really really wanted to work in Africa really really deeply wanted to do that where so that i trained to... where, did, where did that come from well that had been around for a long time i just i want to 
my mother bought me a postcard when I was in my early 20s. No, probably a bit later than that. After, after I had a after we had our first child, my mother bought me a postcard and it said, I wanted to go and change the world, but I couldn't find a babysitter. <laughs> I think there's always been a part of me that has wanted to, to change the world. And of course I go to Africa, I go to Kenya and Kenya changes me because mm. isn't that the way? Mm. So um, I loved teaching and I, in fact, I was exchanging a WhatsApp message with one of my former students just this morning. Wow which is a very strange thing to do, given that in those days, if I wrote a letter to my parents, it took six weeks to arrive. And now I can have a WhatsApp video call with somebody who I was the teacher of. Mm. Doesn't the world change? Um, so I loved teaching and I loved Kenya. And part of me would have stayed there forever. And somebody who was very wise said, if you're going to decide to stay, you need to go back to the UK and you need to make the decision to come back rather than the decision not to go home and mm. um, because it was easy it was so easy we had nothing and actually having nothing was very easy we had just enough so just enough money but no electricity no running water no bills mm. um it was it was it was I, I loved it I absolutely loved it <clears throat> so I came back to the UK and didn't have a clue what I wanted to do but I knew that I didn't want to teach and I didn't want to teach because I loved teaching, but I did not love knowing that at nine o'clock on a Monday morning, I was going to be teaching year nine algebra because I found that really boring. I loved teaching year nine algebra, but I don't want to teach year nine algebra next week or next year or the year after or the year after that. So I, I, my kind of philosophy was I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere in the world, but I don't want to go to London. I don't want to be a teacher. And Somebody who was alongside me, uh, I was their longest unemployed returner. <laughs> and he started <laughs> sending me job uh, job adverts, and he sent me a job advert that was called Information and Counselling Secretary, which was basically working with people who wanted to work in international development. And I looked at it, and it was in London, cross. I was too young, uh, and I didn't have enough experience. So I thought um, I'll apply because then they won't shortlist me and then I can tell them to go away. And I applied and they did shortlist me and they gave me the job. And of course it was not counselling and it was mentoring and coaching people who wanted to work abroad. So I would listen, I would notice what they said, I would help them work out what their offer was and then I had a, well, in those days it was a lever arch set of lever arch files of opportunities with um aid and development agencies and i would go through my thing and i'd say oh so you're this there are organizations looking for people in this country and and would make the connection so it's like a sort of dating agency um but there was no they didn't have a pro they didn't need it wasn't about the past it was about the present so it was coaching so wow. i started that in 1987 wow um and the rest, as they say, is history. But how did that morph into coaching? Because it, it was sort of it wasn't on the title of the tin. Was it, it was coaching, but coaching wasn't a thing that was spoken of. Okay. So I'd meet people and they'd say, "What do you do?" And you'd go into this. Well, it's kind of non-directive work consultancy, and it's a bit like helping people to think about things. And it was just a pain. Yeah. And then um, 
I used to go and stay with my parents. So I had childcare, but for example, there was a huge crisis in Rwanda where all the aid agencies, this was in the 90s, all the aid agencies had to ramp up sending people, plum, uh, water engineers, plumbers, midwives, some very specific skills <clears throat> very quickly. And what happens when there's a disaster like that is that everyone else who's ever thought about wanting to work overseas also says, oh, but I can I come? And so we were working really long hours dealing with all the inquiries that the aid agencies were getting from people who weren't the skills that people wanted. Mm. Um, and so I went one day, I went to stay with my parents um, who took the kids so that I could work longer hours for a bit. Because it was a, it, no, it was a, it was a crisis. And um, when I was staying there, my mum collected Good Housekeeping magazine, and she used to put them by the bed. And I used to stay in bed half the morning while they looked after the children and read Good Housekeeping magazine. And there was an article, and it was about coaching. And I read this article, and it was like the light went on. I went. This article describes what I do. At last, somebody else does it because I wasn't meeting people who did what I did. Mm. So it was like it was it was quite a I mean, I quite like being a maverick. But when you've never met anyone who has a job like yours, it's a bit weird. And suddenly there was this article that said other people did what I did. And mm. so that was the day I started calling myself a coach. It still didn't help because they still didn't know what a coach was, but at least it had a name. I love that. I mean, I know everybody will love that story. Uh, can I just add a little tiny thread we're putting through these conversations, which is the Enneagram, which I mentioned to you, and I know you haven't done it formally before, but I wonder if anybody's got any inklings as to what Claire might be from what we've heard so far. So I'll just remind you, 3,000 years observation at least of people and it seems we can discern uh, the motivation behind somebody for, you know, giving of their... Focus. Don't diagnose me. Although no, 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 when I'm I not... did it myself mm. online as a kind of thing, I'm somewhere around 10 to. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, so I, I will, I will, I would just leave this up to you. But I'm just reminding uh, people for what okay. it's for, and you could decide Good. for your, yourself actually what it is. But. Um, there's a strict perfectionist. There's a there's a considerate helper, a competitive achiever, intense creative, a quiet specialist, a loyal skeptic, an enthusiastic visionary, a uh, a sorry, a, um, and then the one that puts their arms around whatever it is they've got, and then there's the adaptive peacemaker. And the, the thing I'm learning about using this as a tool in my coaching, um, although actually this podcast is called Alongsider. I think what I where I am, which is a being thing, I think uh, the alongsider is whatever's useful. And to me, what you just described in your story was it was about matching whatever's useful in the context, which is fast moving. The thing that wouldn't probably float your boat would be predictability. I, I sort of wrote that down. That might Correct. not. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I just love the thing you said if I could just go back to what you said about just enough um and that whole existence without electricity and everything else I was listening to one of those wild things uh, that on the moment Ben Fogel was following a guy oh, yeah. in a caravan 
and he and it was off grid, no build. That it was, but but this is. Uh, I uh, I went to uh, Kenya in, in the eighties. So I, I I was there, and I fell in love with it as a place. It's just the the scale of it is just stunning. Um, and I've done coaching there as well, actually, since and been back. But but coming back to this thing about just enough, I just wonder um, how does that play out in what you. Um, where you sort of come to? I mean, uh, I know you're you you are you've written a number of books. Um, you are a teacher, actually, aren't you? Um, it's so, and you are uh, someone who uh, I know has uh, a focus on precision. So all of those things that those characteristics which you sort of alluded to in those early, they're clearly still present and playing out. But I just wonder. How? What's the same? What's different between you know your? If we could come more up to date in terms of what you're doing now, I, I know I told you I asked you the other day. You said I, I said I, I'm not the boss. <laughs> I'm the you know. I'm not. You, you've done this alongside this transition, finding your place, taking your place a number of times. I mean, what what has it been teaching you? So, the just enough thing is interesting. I'm I'm, I'm curious that you picked that up about in what I said about Kenya, because that's true. And actually that's also true in what I think about coaching because mm. we only need to do as much as we need to do or the least that we need to do for somebody to feel heard and get new insights. So I'm quite into enough and not too much. Just responding to that bit. I mean, the taking your place thing is interesting because I was 60 two years ago and recognized that looking around me in the world of people running small businesses that I saw a lot of people who didn't know when to leave. Mm. And my dad kept saying to me, I mean, my dad was saying this to me when I was in my mid fifties and I think that was a bit early and I think it's still a bit early, but it's still a good thing that he said, my dad said, you mustn't stay too long because mm. most people stay in a job past the point at which they should have left and nobody's willing to tell them they should go away. That is such good advice. So so two years ago, I um, committed to walking the Camino in Spain, the 600-kilometre pilgrimage. And in order to do that, I was going to have to take six additional weeks off work from the my normal working pattern, which is to take quite a lot of time off. But I needed six more weeks. And what became clear was that I could turn that into a three-month sabbatical. Mm. So uh, I spent five weeks writing my latest book, The Human Behind the Coach, and then off I went to Spain. But it allowed a, a natural break in the running of the business where other people stepped up. So Sue Blanche, my colleague, agreed to be managing partner, and we'd been kind of talking about that on and off for probably 10 years. And it suddenly felt like it was the right time for her and the right time for me. So we swapped. So I'm not the boss anymore, and that's amazing. <laughs> but you're still alongside the business. I'm alongside the business. I'm an employee. Mm. Uh, and I kind of do what I like, which works most of the time, and sometimes we have to talk about that. Yes. No, I can, <laughs> I can believe that. Um it's interesting when you said um, um, about you, you described you got that job and maybe possibly you were surprised you got the job, the one that, that early job. Um, 
on the podcast last week, we had um, Simon Westmacott, who is a CFO. Uh, he's in his late 70s. Um, and uh, he was uh, asked, would he come and do this job of the uh, overseeing the process for the reparations for the Concourse Commission? Which he says sounds very grand, but it wasn't really. But it, basically, it was to make sure the process is right, you know, and that it was fair and equitable. But he said he his interview for the the job went something like, "So this is all about audit, is it? I hate audit, so I definitely don't want to do that." Um, and, and that's the last thing I want to do. And then they phoned him up the next day and said, "Could you, could you?" Say? And I just wondered. I'm just sort of a bit curious. This sort of finding place and taking place, uh, there's a tension, isn't there, between um what we think we want and um what we know we want maybe uh and then actually what will be valuable what would be yeah. you know appropriate and i can remember that first day you know we didn't have mobile phones in those days or selfies or anything else but i can remember sitting in the chair in st james's park in London and I had my own office and I had an executive chair and a desk and this is my first job after I've lived in a house with no ceilings and a hole in the roof and where where I've lived on minimal stuff really and there I am in this ex I mean working for a charity but I can remember saying to friends, I can remember saying to them, here I am in this executive chair. And now you will know I've got a real aversion to power. <laughs> and I'm really interested in power over and power under and power between. But I can remember saying, I can remember then saying to friends, you know, you just won't believe here I am in London and I've got this and I've got that. And, you know, every day I walk past Westminster Abbey and whatever, whatever. It was extraordinary. It was just such a culture shock for me to move from being in a rural, you know, it was an hour's walk to the nearest road from the house that I'd lived in before. Mm. And you had to carry your stuff with you and you didn't have very much stuff. And then suddenly here I am in central London. Very odd. So would you call that a transformation? I call it culture shock. That's a, for sure. Or a, or a translocation, or a because uh, it's a very different place. I wasn't the right. It 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 on on many levels that was a really good move, and I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't done that. But it was also really tricky, you know, because I was commuting on the tube and I had to find somewhere to live. Um, I wasn't earning that much money because it was charity and I had to kind of start again and I hadn't really wanted to start again because I was really happy where I was mm. but it was also the right thing not to stay mm. it was really the right thing not to stay in Kenya mm. because staying in Kenya was the easy option at that point and I needed to make the more courageous decision where did the uh, insight to come away and then make the decision from being away come from that was somebody else's wisdom because I think I said to them in a letter that took six weeks to arrive, <laughs> I want to extend. And I'd already extended a bit. And they said, you can't extend anymore unless you make the decision from the UK. Mm. And what did, was, that, what did that give you uh, that from a different place?
Well, I had to stand here mm. in my in my culture of origin and and make a choice. I mean, my parents had moved. Um, I was quite dislocated, mm. but it was still the right decision to make it from here. And yeah. I, I made the decision when I came back that I would need to have a job before I... I was in between unemployed for about six months, and that wasn't the point to, to say I'm going back because I would be going back because I didn't have anything else. I needed to find something else, and then I needed to make the decision. And then, of course, I started setting a life up for myself here, and then that made the decision different. Yeah. And I went back for work, <clears throat> and then I knew that it was the right thing to be here. Yes. That, um, the person who sent you the letter with the suggestion, do it from here, uh, who was effectively an alongsider in, in, in that, um, what, what would you say is the, what's the same or what's different between that and coaching? They knew more of my, they had more of an agenda connecting to me than a coach would because I was representing their organization and right. therefore their, it, it was slightly less detached. And they were also sharing their, they knew that it wasn't a good idea for people to make a decision from Kenya to sustain Kenya. They knew from their experience. So that was more of a mentoring thing. I was going to say, yeah. They yeah. knew from their experience that having people come back and make a decision from here was a much better, a much more wise decision. Yeah. And I, and I found myself, um, I had to find a flat I could afford and somebody knew somebody who knew somebody who knew an organisation who rented out flats cheap. And mm. I got a flat in Clapham Common and the, my neighbour upstairs, uh, who was more than 20 years older than me, she was a nun who just left her religious order. Oh. And 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 then I'd found my alongsider because we both had culture shock in different ways. And that was such a beautiful journey. And she's now godmother to my now very adult daughter. Um, and we're still in contact. Mm -hmm. But but traveling with somebody who was traveling alongside somebody who was also experiencing a, quite a significant culture shock was a really good thing. Mm. It's funny. I I, uh, I lived in Clapham for a long time, and um, there was a lady who ran a shop around the corner who used to be a nun, and now ran a shop, and uh, very well actually as well. Uh, and that, again, I had some very interesting conversations yeah. with, with that. Because um, if we could go to um, coaching, uh, which is now more known, a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of people who've trained. There's a lot of training about. Yeah. Um, I noticed uh, listening to Derek Hill on your podcast, uh, recent podcast, he was talking about endings, uh, which I thought was was a very, very rich conversation. I do actually believe that culturally with endings is something we don't like to go to for all sorts of reasons. But um, the structure of a coaching relationship actually, I think, helps. It's the structure that sort of that helps in many ways. But. It's, there's, that's in a sort of another conversation. 
But I, I um, he uh, trained at the Henley, um, and uh, I, one of my first uh, supervisors, I coach supervisors as well. My first um, supervisee, who I met at the ICF conference, actually. Uh, but uh, and he ended up going to train at Henley because that was he came out of something very different. But uh, to that, and it just struck to me that that one thing that coaching offers is this sort of ability to move from one thing to another you know where the world says that you're in a box you have to do it but actually it could be this and that um but the thing that uh derek said towards the end of your conversation was was um he was thinking about advocate and i thought by that i mean in supporter of rather than a, a lawyer or whatever uh and i just wondered uh whether that resonates with you in where you are now and and if so what are you an advocate of i'm definitely an advocate of doing less <laughs> i like that uh i think i'm an advocate of it doesn't have to be like this and one of the things that i've learned on my journey is that you know, you talk about un alongside her. I think I'm an edge walker. So I think that my place to be is a little bit on the edge, and that's not always easy. Mm. But I think I'm a bit on the edge of the profession. But the thing about being on the edge is that you have to know where the middle is in order to be on the edge. Mm because you can only find the edge from the inside. You can't find the edge from the outside, I think. Um, and I think that's my, I think that's my place. Mm. And so we moved two years ago, three, three years ago, actually. Uh, and, and finding my place as an edge walker in a place where I don't know anybody is really hard because mm. you are, you're on the edge by definition rather than choosing to put yourself on the edge. So, yeah. And what has that been, what have you been learning from that process? I've gone a bit more solo here. So I, I know lots of people, but I don't know crowds. Mm. So I know this person over here in this context, and then I know somebody else over here in another context. But if I had a party, if we had a party, most of the people who were there wouldn't know each other. Yeah. So what you said that, I think you said that on the podcast, actually, the, the, um, with Derek there. And so what's what's is that just about your your place, your position, um, that's that's created that sort of separation, if you like, or that individualism, or is it just just the way it is, sort of thing? Well, there's something, isn't there, about finding your people mm. or finding your tribe? And I think, you know, my husband and I talk about it quite a lot. But there was something about consciously walking into the wilderness when we moved here. So Brene Brown in Braving the Wilderness quotes a friend of hers called Jen Hatmaker. And Jen Hatmaker talks about leaving the city and going out into the wilderness. And everybody goes, oh, don't go out there. There'll be dragons out there. Yeah. But the further you walk into the wilderness, the more you find pockets of people. Mm. And I think, you know, I've used the I've used the description finding your tribe. And in fact, this morning I was 
we've been shortlisted for a, a, a really beautiful health service award. And um, I was talking to a colleague this morning who's got a very senior job in the health service. And she and I are doing a presentation next week together because we've been shortlisted for these awards and we have to say why we think we should win them. And I said, I'm not doing a conventional presentation because they it feels like they want PowerPoint and they want slides and they want data. And I'm, go I'm going to talk about finding your tribe. Mm. That's my subject. Mm. Um, because we've run this, we have done a tiny bit of a piece of work that they've done a big bit of, which is supporting um, ethnic majority staff to find their tribe and get support. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But the thing I, the fantasy I think I had when we started here was that finding your tribe would be finding a tribe. Mm. But actually finding your people might be finding this person and that person and somebody else. It doesn't mm. necessarily mean that you need to find them all in one place. I've got a friend of mine who uh, is a wonderful coach. He was, he was on the second podcast, Robin Yurston, and, uh, and he had a dream. Uh, he won't mind me showing this because uh, he's told me I can. Um and he was on a parade ground, and there was one person over there, and there was another person over there, and there's another person sort of over there, and it was about connecting. And I wonder if what this is about is about finding your tribe. There's there's one part of that, but there's another part. It's about finding your place, as you say, with people in different seasons, because uh, the iteration is you went into the wild, to, you know, to Kenya. You know, not the wild, but the you know, it's sim very simple life. There's a little theme here. You know, so, you know. Um, I'm holding up simplifying coaching, um, and there's also a simplicity of starting somewhere new, yeah. um, and that iteration between that. And I wonder, and so just enough is something. Um, the world, uh, I I would suggest, suffers from exhaustion. From doing too much, basically going too fast all the time. It's and that is unsustainable. So this mm -hmm. thing we 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 point to the planet and say it's you know is actually uh, about everything. It's there's a there's a thing. And when you were saying about that, I, I Saint Francis of Assisi, I think is one of the most popular saints ever. Apparently, um, um, fell in love with his own story. Was you know he, he kissed the leper and you know through falling off his horse sort of thing you know it was almost by accident but he and he realized that actually the the place he wanted to be was with the poor so those with nothing and uh and he wasn't on anything he wasn't a a monk or a friar or anything else it became that but uh he was very popular and the pope at the time got a bit sensitive to this you know what's going on and sent out the envoys and, uh, and they said what are you doing and he said i oh i just want to be with the poor he said oh that's all right you know and and was left alone because he was on the edge but he didn't fall out with the middle yeah and i and i think uh this is something i've noticed with you um you hold the tribe there's something about you that holds the tribe together. And I think it's your heart, actually. You know, it's a it's it's because you care. Thank you. And 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 there's a there's um there's a rigor about you, which is quite frightening. <laughs> no, I'm I'm sort of joking, but actually in the coaching sense, there is a need for a discipline to hold the space 
to know why you're there, know um, who you're alongside, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which I've found personally 14 years since I first trained and I learn every day, particularly from my coaches. Um, but um, I've learned more about myself, but also how to get out of the way or try and get out of the way. Um, um, there's, there's something, isn't there, about about not making people dependent on us? Hmm. So I notice in terms of my tribe now, I can name for you people who I feel very connected to here where we live, hmm. and one of them is Badger Man. So Badger Man is the man who, when I work, walk at a certain time in the morning, he's always out there walking with his big stick. I don't know what his name is, but we've had some really deep and meaningful conversations, he and I. I mean, really extraordinary conversations. And he's part of my tribe. Yeah. Um, and he's called Badgerman because he tells you where the wildlife are. <clears throat> so he'll say, oh, there are badgers over there today, or there's a fox in that field, or whatever, whatever. Um and I kind of like being lightly connected to people mm. in a kind of deep way. So mm. on Saturday, I I love doing things on my own. So on Saturday, my husband for, bought me for Christmas a bookbinding lesson. Mm. So on Saturday, um, and of all the places in the in the United Kingdom, the bookbinding lesson that was recommended most by Google is two miles from our house. <laughs> so on Saturday morning. I put my pet lunch in a rucksack and walked down a path that is an old merchant's path from the medieval times. Mm. And I walked to the next village down this path through the fields, got very muddy, and arrived at my bookbinding lesson mm. where I connected deeply with three other people who were also at the bookbinding lesson who I'll probably never see again. But there was a, there was a moment in time when we were very connected and telling deep stories to each other. Mm. And I love that. Mm. And in coaching, as you said, mm. you said, I knew, know you better than you know me because I don't talk about myself very much. Mm. And now I'm talking about myself endlessly, which is a bit of a pain. But, in that, <laughs> but in that equitable situation in the bookbinding lesson, you know, we're all giving and receiving pretty much in equal measure. Mm. And it was really interesting mm. and beautiful. And uh, I think what you said there about pathways, I think uh, is uh, these are ancient pathways. Yeah. And, and ancient pathways have ancient signposts. Yeah. And uh, so there's a metaphor in, in all of that. And I think that a lot of what the alongsider can, can support is onto the right pathway. Uh, you, it's up to you whether you take it or not. I'm just talking about the answer. I'm not talking about coach here particularly. I'm talking about the alongsider that, and it may be a chance thing, but I I wonder whether what uh, we're witnessing is is the emergence of the need for the alongsider to be along someone alongside me and uh, us to be alongside. In other words, the biggest uh, uh, curse of our age is loneliness, yeah. uh, and you know all the research suggests that, and there's all sorts of consequences about that. So this. A coaching relationship is a sort of artificial connection. When I say artificial, it's that it is an artifice because it's yeah. it's being created. Um, 
But I've noticed with the, the conversations that I'm having a lot about alongside her, um, it's a very easy I mean, this hasn't been a difficult conversation. Uh, uh, it, it, there's an ease, um, and it needs to be with the right people, and it needs to be at the right time and and connection. And by that, I don't mean that someone else would not be. It's but there's something about the quality of the alongsider. It's at the right time. Like you, you got your letter, uh, and yeah. you know, it, it, it there's some something. There's something about not being afraid of our own story. Mm. And there's also something, isn't there, about not being afraid of somebody else's story. Mm. So Badgerman's told me a lot about his story and about his father and about his brother. And I still don't even know his name. And he's pointed me into ancient ways that I didn't know about. Yeah. You know, did you know that if you go through that gate, whatever, whatever, so then you do. And then next time I see Badgerman, I go, oh, did you know I went through that gate? <laughs> and so, he teaches me about the animals and the wildlife and the, you know, and there's a generosity in what he's willing to share. And I like that. Yes. And I'm sure he enjoys it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he'd do it if he, if he didn't, you know, and that maybe there's a habit in there, uh, but there's something. Um. This has been a, a lovely uh, meander uh, through your story. Uh, thank you for being so generous about uh, this. And I know we could have another one. Maybe we could. I'm going to do these in seasons. These, these, okay. And I'll, so there'll be another season. I think this one's about connecting as much as anything else. But uh, can I ask you, uh, of the, uh, we didn't mention all of them, but there'll be others, I'm sure, but where people have come alongside you and you've come alongside others, clearly. Just a thought, I was on a call this morning, uh, which was actually at a, um, a university, um, whereas a charity, they they create a pathway for young, probably 15-year-olds to, to be able to apply for a pretty prestigious university. Um, and they, 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 they train their first-year students to be coaches, to come alongside the young people, and they have a summer camp, and then they coach in between. It's a lovely, you know... Uh, inclusive thing. Anyway, they they found that the dis that, that life's busy. You know, things get bit and things drop off. And, and what emerged from the conversation was that the desired outcome was to create a community of people. And they're not saying community. So for me, community is common unity. What have we got in common? Might be bookbinding. You know, uh, or but actually, the other thing was that some of these people will will leave, and you can they could come back again and share what they've learned. And what they were learning was to be coaches, to be alongside others, alongside them. But um, the learning doesn't stop when you're in the room or in the no. Like, the learning carries on as you apply what you've learned and everything else, and you can bring it back to the community. So the the hero's journey, which is sort of going out into the thing, which is a bit of what you'd expect, but it doesn't normally say you meet these, you know, these these sort of interesting. Uh, connections that change you and you know and that's the and I just thought that what you're doing is creating this lovely lovely community of coaches I don't know what the collective noun for for, for coaches is but um if there needs to be one but um, humans thank you a tribe of humans because <laughs> uh, to me alongside it is just that human it's it's yeah. it, it's just to being human and and maybe we need a 
a bit of training, uh, which is a pathway. But beyond the training, it's about, well, you know, how do you make it your own? How do you apply it? You know, how do you do as little as possible? Um, my training for being human this year is my paddleboarding lessons. Oh, and what is that teaching you? It's teaching me to be very vulnerable, trust my teacher, laugh a lot, and not be afraid of falling in the river when mm. I don't know how I'm going to get out. <laughs> <laughs> and that all is teaching me about my work. Yeah, I hear that. No, I hear that. Oh, Claire, thank you so much for that. I really, really appreciate that. Is there anything else? Or I just want to say, I just want you to say thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. It really has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for being so uh, generous. Uh, pleasure. And let's see you soon. Okay. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bless you. Take care.